uh, grab your Bibles and uh, let's, um, let's jump into uh, Romans 9, all of you hypers and TRs that have been so excited for this. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Oh, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of this God, it endures forever. Guys, um, uh, we've somewhat divided the book of Romans up into sections. We just completed a section. There was a section that began in chapter 5 and through chapter 8. Chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 are somewhat of a section. Well, chapter 9 begins... Uh, a, a new section. Uh, it's chapters 9, 10, and 11, where uh, there is a central thought that is de- being developed by the Apostle Paul, and it is a thought, I mean, it is, it is a development of utter genius, and I hope to be able to point that out. But uh, the question that must uh, concern us as we begin is, what is the connection, if any, of this section, that is Romans 9, 10, and 11, to what Paul has taught earlier, to the earlier sections of Romans, uh, primarily to this previous section of 5, 6, 7, and 8, what is the connection, if there is any, of 9, 10, and 11 to 5, 6, 7, and 8? Um, is, there, is, it a, is it a continuation of 5, 6, 7, and 8, or is it unrelated completely? Well, gang, what I hope to show you, at least tonight as we start, is that indeed 9, 10, and 11 is a continuation, uh, 
And it's, it's more than a continuation game. It is a logical necessity. That is, the, the argument that Paul develops in 9, 10, and 11 is a logical necessity. That is, on the heels of 5, 6, 7, and 8, 9, 10, and 11 is a logical necessity for this reason. Gang, the great theme of chapter 8, as I hope you will recall, the great theme of chapter 8 is the final perseverance of the believer. The safety, the security, the confidence that the, the believer can have and the, uh, the assurances that God has given. Um, the, the believer's ultimate end is a fixed, is, is a settled issue because it is the fixed purpose of God. That is, may I say it again, the theme of Romans 8 is the final perseverance based on the fixed purposes of God. It is God's purpose that ultimately guarantees the final perseverance of any believer. What God starts, He finishes. Let me remind you, uh, just of a, uh, if I could read verses uh, 29 and 30 of chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me say again, the the the... The theme of this, of that section is, or of chapter eight, is the final perseverance of the believer, and the final perseverance of the believer is made certain, is guaranteed, because of the fixed purposes of God. Consequently, nothing, or no one. Look at verse 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason that that, that Paul can make a statement like that, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things created nor things, nothing will separate us, is because of the fixed purposes of God. We just sang a song about um, uh, nothing can make him his purposes forego. Great language. No. There is an ultimate confidence on the part of the believer because of the fixed purposes of God toward him. Now, that is the theme of chapter 8. So again, Paul has just made this incredibly um, comprehensive statement for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He's made this statement. And so he begins to think, okay, guys, this is, this is where you see the genius of the Apostle Paul. He begins to think, all right, I know what my audience is thinking. I know now what question they're going to ask. And, and, and what they're going to say is, well, wait a minute, Paul. You have just taught of the ultimate and final perseverance of the believers and their ultimate safety based on the purposes of God. Wait a minute, Apostle. Wait a minute, Paul. What about the Jews? 
Um, Paul, I mean, didn't God start with the Jews? I mean, didn't He start out with them as, their, as His people? And, and He didn't finish that. Um, the vast majorities of Jews do not believe in Christ. Um, so where is this immutability of His purpose, Paul? Can we as believers latch hold of, with confidence, verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8, um, when it appears that God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, had been cast off? Are you with me? You see, he's, he's made this giant assertion in chapter 8. And then he thinks, my audience is going to ask me this. Wait a minute, Paul, wait a minute. You're so confident about the, you know, the final perseverance of the... But what about the Jews? I mean, weren't they God's chosen people? And I'm telling you, God didn't finish that. So how is it that you expect me to believe this, this great confidence that you're describing when it didn't seem to work out with the Jews so well? Does the history of Israel militate against the security of the Christian. Are you with me? I mean, does what you see in the history of Israel undercut and render null and void the great argument of chapter 8, which is the great confidence of the believer? Now, that's why I say, guys, that it's not only a continuation, but it is a logical necessity. Paul has to clear up that huge item for the sake of his argument in chapter 8. I, I hope you see that. That's why I'm suggesting that, yes, chapter 9 and 10 and 11 are incredibly related to what we've just studied in chapter 8. And not only are they related, they're the logical consequence, the logical necessity, logical necessity methodologically, philosophically, analytically, it, Paul now has to say, okay, let me address this issue concerning Judaism. If God promised to Israel that they would be His people, and yet the majority of Judaism does not believe in Christ, does that mean that God's promises, His power, His His um, His mercy has somehow failed, and that is the subject, ladies and gentlemen, that Paul tackles in chapters nine, ten, and eleven. <laughs> he he goes to great extremes to address the 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 Jew issue. Because he doesn't want anything to undercut his argument that he's made in chapter 8. Gang, um, uh, I, I'm gonna, I'll give you a new word. Um, chapters 9, 10, and 11 is what's known as a theodicy. It is a, um, it is a justification of God's ways with respect to men. And in this case, in respect to particularly Israel. It's, a, it's called a theodicy. 
I don't know whether you like those words. I love those words. I, I, just, I even like to say them, you know, a theodicy. Well, um, a theodicy is nothing more than a justification of God's ways uh, with respect to men. So that's what this is. Uh, and guys, you, you'll see it all throughout this incredible argument. And when, in about three years, when we're finished with it, I'm sure you'll remember everything that I'm saying tonight. Um, now, guys, there are several subsidiary themes. And we'll look at those as we go. But tonight, as we introduce the whole chapter, I want us to, um, I want us to spend a little bit of time on three introductory themes and then we'll come back, and next week we'll pick at the text some. And we'll, but I want you to see three things just by way of introduction. But let me read you the first three verses again. Just the first three verses, because that's going to that's gonna consume our time tonight and next week and maybe the next. We'll see. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Of course, that's a reference to Judaism or or Jews. Now, just real quickly, um, a couple of three introductory notions and we'll be finished for the night. I'm saying that this is a theodicy. That is, an attempt on the part of the Apostle Paul to justify... The ways of God with respect to men. Now, you've got to, you've got to love that, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to love it that God condescends to explain His ways to us. You've got to love it that God is willing to spend the time to outline or help explain what He's up to and what He's done. That in and of itself, ladies and gentlemen, is, is, a, is a stroke and piece of divine mercy that he would explain himself to you and me. Now, let me assure you, he doesn't explain all of himself. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, were he to do that, then we wouldn't need him. You will never plumb the depths of all of his nature and his character. But in this instance, it's important, by way of the Holy Spirit, is it important to God that you be, that you be quieted. Not, not, I mean, but, but that you have enough information about his ways so that you can enjoy this great promise of chapter 8. That's a sweet thing. Now, it is a theodicy. It is in terms of his explanation. But flip over real quick to chapter 11. Because in the final analysis, ladies and gentlemen, if the explanation is not adequate for you, I'm sorry. The, the, it might be my fault uh, when we're finished in three years. Um, it might be my fault that we didn't, I didn't explain it very well or I didn't make it clear, etc., etc. But it might not be my fault. It might be that you're a dullard. It might be that you're not listening. It might be that you're preparing your grocery list. Who knows? But in the final analysis, gang, here's the argument. Summum bonum. You know what that means? Yeah, thank you. 
the highest argument of all. Listen to this, guys. Uh, chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and ins- how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? And here it is, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to know it is the most comprehensive statement of the sovereignty of God to be found any place in written literature. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's it! That's all you get! If you don't get it, then hide in this. The depth of His riches and wisdom and knowledge. His ways are past finding out. And from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, I'm telling you, he spends a great deal of energy and and ink trying to explain himself. But ultimately, if you don't get it, hide in this. For of him, and through him, and to him. Guys, think about those prepositions. Of him. That means he's the origin. Of him. He's the beginning. Leap to the third one. To Him. He's the end. He's the beginning and He's the end. And then, go back to the middle one. Through Him. He's the middle! (laughs) Of Him, through Him, to Him. He is the beginning, He's the middle, and He's the end. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen! Is that enough for you? One of the reasons that I love this, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know that you know this, But tonight when you leave, go out that door and look at the cornerstone on Grace Evangelical Church. You know what it is? It's Romans chapter 11, verse 33. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Amen. Gang, you know... um, uh, there's a lot of folks who have difficulty, or, they, or at least so they say, intellectual difficulties with God. And I'm not so sure they're so intellectual. That is, I'm not saying that they're not intellectual people. I'm, not, I'm just saying that their objections aren't intellectual. They hide, they call them intellectual. Intellectual uh, um, problems with God, with believing in God. But I don't know much, I, I think in more cases than not, they're not really intellectual. They're moral. Um, it's not a question of can't. It's a question of won't. It's a question of won't that's hiding in can't. It's a question of moral hiding behind an intellectual shroud. But ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, the Christian is somebody that comes to a text like this and simply shuts up. Of him, through him, to him. It is the summation of everything in the book. 
Now, <laughs> let me tell you why. I put them. I'm saying that 9, 10, and 11 are a theodicy. They're an explanation of God's ways uh, with respect to men. That's a kindness. That's a mercy that he has, that he has, has given usward. But, you know, it's going to be intricate. And it's going to be difficult. Wait until you get to this text, shake up I love, but Esau I hated. You ain't going to like that one. <laughs> and you're going to wrestle around with it. And you're going to groan and moan. And, and then you're going to say, well, I don't like Jimmy's explanation. And that's fine. But in the final analysis, if you don't get it, then go hide in this. Because you do get that. Those are three simple prepositions. Of, through, to. That's what God is. He's of, through, to. And that should be enough. No, I haven't gotten all the the particulars sorted out. And Judaism still gives me a little bit of uh, cause and pause for concern because I don't know if I don't get it. But I know this. Of Him and through Him and to Him belong all things. That's enough. Now, uh, we got to... We have, to, <laughs> we have to move on. Um, that, that's the first thing. The second thing that I wanted you to see in terms of just an just a introductory observation has to do with this, this whole section. <laughs> in, in, at one level, in a, in a more generic sense, this section, that is 1911, deals with the Christian philosophy of history. You know, guys, um, we have an educator here, in my opinion, that is an educator par excellence. Um, I, don't know, I don't know of anybody in the room that gets this better than he does, including me. Bill McGee. I've met with Bill. You know, Bill runs Briarcrest, and, um, I, and this is not a promo for Briarcrest, but... Um, but I'm telling you, it might be a promo for Bill McGee. But Christian education is different than going to school and adding chapel on the end of it. A Christian school is not a school with chapel. And it's not a school that has a Bible class. Christian education is something that has... Christian education has a view of mathematics. There is a Christian view of mathematics. There is a Christian view of of philosophy or recreation or physical fitness. Christian education is something that's supposed to permeate everything that I that I uh, that I think, the way I use my time, the way I use my money, the way I recreate, the, 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 the way I think. The, you know, for instance, um, um, uh, apartheid. Uh, affirmative action. How do you like those issues, ladies and gentlemen? Aren't those toughies? But, you know, we, we race to a politician to tell us what we should be thinking about these very critical social issues. And I'm telling you, the Lord God Almighty has spoken about those issues. There is a Christian way that we look at everything, including history. 
History, and it's not just history. Christian history is his story. It's far more profound than that. <laughs> it's like people say, um, oh, I know what grace is. God, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, if that, if that turns you crank, ladies and gentlemen, go with it. It's a, it's a sweet little thing and it's not inaccurate. It's just falls so far short of what grace is. You know, um, I hear, really I'm on a tangent now, but, um, uh, you know, people will get all exuberant and they'll say, isn't God neat? No, he's not. No, ladies and gentlemen, that is not a word that you ought to be using to describe God. Neat, cool, groovy. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, there is a Christian way to think of history. Um, how do we fit in to the unfolding of history? What is God up to in your life? Well, let me just um, do this real quickly and we'll go home. Gang, if you are a Christian, here's what's going on. Uh, God is through all kinds of various ways, forming Jesus Christ in you. So that in the end of, in the consummation of the age, you are going to stand alongside with this vast throng of people and um, give glory to the God who made you, standing alongside the, the Son that is His Beloved. Um, one of our, uh, I think, um, failings is that um, we forget what God is up to in our individual lives because we've got plans of our own, our, our little schemes and plans, which really have nothing to do with the ultimate consummation of history and will, that is, our little schemes and plans, will prove utterly meaningless um, on that day. But if you're a believer in Christ, you must know this. You are here to be made into the image of Jesus Christ. And He will not stop short of anything to produce that reflection in us, even to the point of inflicting pain on us. We are here so that we can be made like Christ and then spend large portions of our time striving to win others to that same Christ so that they too um, will stand in that great throng of people alongside the beloved Son of God. Now guys, I told you it was generic and I tried to make it as generic as I could. That is generic. But that's what God is up to. 
in all of the, the stresses and strains and, and aches and pains and challenges and complexities that, that uh, corporate life brings you and, and family life brings you and church life brings you, what he's up to is that he's making us all look more like the Son of God. So that on that day, there's going to be a lot of people standing alongside as brothers and sisters of His beloved Son. That's what history is. That's what history is. That's where history is headed. And that's what He's up to while He takes us to that final consummating act. You're going to get that. You're going to get a glimpse of that as you watch what He's up, what He's done with Israel. The history of Israel is somewhat of a microcosm of what he's doing. Well, maybe you're the microcosm. Maybe we're the microcosm uh, individually of what he's up to in a grander and bigger scale. But guys, um, know this. All that you're moaning and groaning, and, and and I'm not trying to make light of those moans and groans because some of them are huge. They're enough to make your palms sweat at night, aren't they? They're enough to make you lose a good night's sleep, if not a good week's. I understand that, and I, I am, I'm very tender towards that. But understand the purpose of it. God is taking raw materials that we brought to the, to the Savior, and He's making it into something that's altogether beautiful. And you're going to see that as we study the history of Israel. That's great. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that there is something that you're up to with Israel as well as up to with America and with Iran and with me. And I pray, O oh God, that um, more and more we'll get this cosmic picture of a great God from whom, through whom, and to whom belong all things. Bring us into better understanding of your glorious person. We ask it for Jesus' sake.
and to whom belong all things. Bring us into better understanding of your glorious person. We ask it for Jesus' sake.